You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, April 15th, 2020, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Well, good evening, everyone. Happy not-tax day, everyone. That's right. (laughs) Tax day, not-tax day. The ghost of tax day. Okay, so this has never happened before in the history of our country. Uh, Tax day for as long, I think since 19, well, since they adopted April 15th as the tax day. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's never, it's never been postponed until this year. Yeah. Officially. It's never been moved. It's always been April 15th. 15th. And we're talking wars, you know, we're talking all anything and everything you can think of for the last 70 years. That is that has happened. But this virus did it. Wow. I know it's amazing. It was necessary. It, de- it definitely definitely necessary. People need all the help they can get right now, financially and otherwise. Yeah, that's true because it's not just about filing paperwork on tax day. It's about paying what you owe and that's right. I think I probably owe quite a bit. But if you're getting a refund, you could file whenever you want. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And and we've encouraged our clients if they're expecting refunds, don't wait. Do not wait. No no yeah. point in waiting. So yeah. mm-hmm. those are the ones I've heard from and the people who oh I've not heard from, generally speaking. <laughs> right, right, right. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, you guys. I got the funniest well, I shouldn't say funny because it was actually very depressing oh. email today from a local massage studio here in LA. It's it says COVID nineteen update. And you know, now is the time, right? We're getting so many emails and some of them amazing, some of them super arbitrary from companies being like, in these times of crisis, we're here to tell you that we exist. And you're like, what? I don't need this update. But this one is so strange. It says to our massage clients, effective today, all massage treatments will be canceled through April 5th. This comes in recommendation from the city, the state and the California Massage Therapy Council. The safety and wellness of our clientele, staff and massage therapists is our number one priority. We will be here when this passes. In the meantime, please be gentle with yourself and practice self-care at home. Oh, I love that. Oh. And then immediately after, it says, mm-hmm. we are still treating chiropractic and acupuncture patients. Oh, good. Oh, yeah, the essential <laughs> stuff. What? Sure. Yeah, right? Oh, and then, you know, don't uh, come if you have symptoms, blah, blah, blah. What the heck? Uh, oh, my God. That makes no sense. Okay. No, it makes zero, zero, Well, but zero just keep sense. this in mind, guys. There are people out there who are 100% assured, believing that this stuff is totally legitimate, just sure. like we think, mm-hmm. you know, like going going and get a physical. You know, it's like it's part of their milieu. That's it. They believe it. Yeah, but they're totally exploiting this. Completely. In order to, yeah. to promote themselves. Yeah. You know, chiropractors, some chiropractors are explicitly promoting themselves as a as way of boosting your immune system or whatever to treat or prevent COVID-19. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. just that's just pathetic. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, not not that any of us are surprised. I mean, we've come no. to learn that this is what they do. Well, it's also just, you know, taking advantage of the fear and uncertainty that's out mm-hmm. there. You know, it's based that's what snake oil salesmen do, right? Oh yeah. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually seeing, you know, uh we talk about this sometimes that in order to prep for SGU or in order for me to share kind of like I try to curate different news stories on my Twitter feed. Um, I'll go through a feed reader every week and it's just been all COVID-19. That's like, you know, it's hard to Mm -hmm. find a story that's not COVID related. So I get really excited when I see them. But the cool thing is I'm starting more and more to see at some of the outlets that I really like people writing about the history of snake oil, the history of 
harmful practices during times of fear and pandemics. And it's really cool that a lot of science historians are digging up some of the things that they saw during the 1918 flu pandemic or, you know, when Ebola first came on the scene and how people were responding to them and writing about that so that we can learn from them. Mm -hmm. So There's some really cool news articles out there. Yeah. I mean, obviously we're, we're, using the opportunity to get our message out as well. But our message mm-hmm. is listen to the experts. Mm-hmm. Yes. Listen to the experts. Not that it's early days still. Again, this is a novel coronavirus, but even like, you know, Fauci and others are saying, yeah, we're, we're two weeks behind reality. By the time we yeah. sort of get a handle on what's happening, that information is two weeks old. So mm-hmm. we're always playing catch up yep. in a fast moving pandemic. Yeah, and and you know, people have gone back and said, "Oh, look, their statements are changing." Of course, they're changing. This yeah, is a very dynamic, fluid yeah. situation. They're, we they're giving about you that the, on the show. Last yeah, they're giving week, you the like, best information they can at the time with right. the caveats, with the unknowns. You know, it's as if it's as if like in the middle of my dissertation, my my dissertation chair expected me to stop in the middle of data collection and give a press conference about all of my findings. Like that's what's happening right right now. We're only just now collecting the data. We have not had time to analyze it. We're not at the end of the thing yet to be able to say with any sort of certainty that this is how things are. We're such an impatient society. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Yeah. The thing that drives me insane are the people who are critical on I don't want to say guesstimations, but, you know, they're they're critical on projections as an example. Mm -hmm. You know, we take the best information we have. We use the the best methodology that we have to try and figure out what the future holds for things that are inherently very chaotic. And they turn those types of predictions into they got it wrong. They got it wrong. It's like, well, well, you know, you know what we're trying to do? We're trying to make the best damn guesses and projections that we can. That's all that we have. Well, the other thing is I, I hate it when, like, you make a probabilistic statement. You could say, like, it's 90% likely that A is going to happen. Right. And, you know, 10% that not A will happen, right? And then A mm-hmm. doesn't happen. They go, you were wrong. It's like, no. I said it was – I didn't say it was 100%. I said it was 90%. Yeah. Which means 10% of the time it's not going to be A. Right. Right? Yeah. yeah. You have to look at the actual statistics to say if – you know, those, how accurate those... And beware of people who speak are. in absolutes anyways. That's yeah. a red flag. Thank you. Yeah, that they're trying to sell you something. But mm-hmm. I, I think the part that's so frustrating for me, sort of to what you were speaking about, Jay, is where individuals, and you see this all the time, where individuals will say, okay, the warnings are out there. We have to social distance, uh, physical distance, sorry. We have to do X, Y, and Z. We have to get out in front of this thing. And if we do that, we'll be able to reduce the number of deaths because, you know, the mm-hmm. the probabilistic statement is that we'll lose between X people and X people. And then we do that. It starts working and they go, see, it wasn't that bad. Everybody's yeah. making such <laughs> a few. Yeah. And you're it's like, the no, Y2K it's thing. Not giving yeah. credit. Properly to to the yeah. measures that were put in place or the recommend or the guidelines and recommendations by who the experts. It's amazing. <sighs> I mean, it's just incredible. Like you cannot get through to some people. No, and well, look, it's it's really at its core. We as critical thinkers have established a trust in science. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a relationship with the methodology behind science and the people who who practice that. And that's, that is my baseline. That's my core. But the, the thing that just, you know, it's such a, this is such a, a basic skeptical tenant that I don't care what the truth is. I just want to know what the truth is. My, what I believe can change 
you know, very quickly with the right amount of information and, and proof, right? Right. That's the, that's the part that's immutable here. Right. You're invested. You, you're not invested in the end result. You're invested in the process. Yeah. And you're not yeah. sitting here trying to negotiate with truth to get a better outcome or one that feels more one that feels like more politically salient. And that's a really yeah. difficult time right now is that there are world leaders. There are many world leaders and many governments or I should say governors and mayors here in the US who are looking at this thing in an evidence-based way and that's incredible to see in a time of crisis they're saying I want to understand what the experts have to say. I want to talk to the virologists, the epidemiologists. I want to see what these projections are, and I want to do what's right by the people. The problem is there are also a handful of other world leaders, and I don't think I have to be explicit, who are just not interested in evidence. And they want to make mm -hmm. decisions based on whether it either be their feelings, whether it be what they wish were true, what, what would be more convenient to be true. Yeah, none of us wish it were like this out there, but we know the only road to getting past this is to look at the evidence. So yep. let's run the numbers very quickly. Total yep. worldwide confirmed cases of COVID-19 just broke 2 million, 2 million. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. With 134,000 deaths. I mean, that's as of right now, obviously by the time you hear this, the numbers are going to be higher. And in the U.S., it's 605,000 cases, 24,500 deaths. So the U.S. has the had most cases of any country. Yeah, and most yeah. of those cases are in New York, right? Yeah, you know, you know, New York has the biggest concentration yeah. of them. Yeah, I'm going to actually get into that uh, with my news item tonight. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and already there are people saying that, oh, look, it's not as high as a, as a typical flu year. It's like, yeah, the graph is still pointing upwards. Yeah, it's only March, you know? guys, or April. Yeah. Jeez. April. <laughs> <laughs> what day is it? Kara. <laughs> Kara, you need to get out more. I know. <laughs> Safely with a mask. <laughs> I was thinking about getting our mom a, a clock. I saw a clock for sale on Amazon that doesn't have the hours. It's Every hour is the day of the week. So, it's, so it goes through. So it's like, oh, look, yeah. it's Thursday. And it's halfway between Thursday and Friday. So it's Thursday at noon. And uh, But now maybe I should get one for Carrie. That's for the months. You know, like. I know. Seriously. <laughs> oh, my God. I need a little help over here, guys. A year-long clock. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, Jay, let's go segue to the news items. You're going to start by telling us about how they're counting the dead in New York City. So the main question here is, why is New York having a significantly more robust reaction to COVID-19? They have more infections, more deaths per capita than any other state in the U.S. This is a big question, and it's very hard to get to legitimate answers here. So the stats that I'm going to quote for you were current on Monday, April 13th. So COVID-19 death rates in New York was 513 deaths per million people. And as a, a comparison, in California, there were 17 deaths recorded per, per million people. Oh, wow. That's a huge difference, 513 yeah. to 17. 70% of New York State's COVID-19-related deaths are, rep are reported in the city itself, in New York City. Because don't forget, those of you who are not from this area of the world, uh, New York State is huge. It's huge. It goes Size all the way up yeah. from, from the tip of New York all the way to the Canadian border. All Maybe the it, way and back yep, again. It, it blasts you know, past all of those states, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Vermont, and New Hampshire. It goes all the way up. But New York City, which is you know, it pales in, in real estate, but the, the population density is enormous in New York City. So what's the cause of this? 
and here are some facts that can that have helped us find the answer. So scientists have studied the viral genome and they've discovered that California had eight different introductions of the virus and those were mainly from Asia. And New York, however, had um, had hundreds of introductions of the virus, and those were mainly from Europe. Now, each introduction starts its own chain of transmission, and that's in quotes. A chain of transmission is essentially who infected who, the map of who infected who, who infected who, to who, to who, to who, right, all the way down. So interestingly, a man from New Rochelle, uh, this is a small city outside of New York City with a population of 78,000, you know, 70, 79,000 people. 37, I'm sorry, 23 miles and 37 kilometers away from New York City. This man from New Rochelle was called a super spreader. Now, that's not a uh, pejorative. That is a, you know, that's a, an adjective of uh, the way that this particular person manifested the, the, the virus and how easily that person can spread the virus. So a super spreader is someone who infects much more, many more people than normal. So they calculate that this person passed the infection over to over a hundred people. Oh wow! Uh, and the typical tip- are not as what two to three. Like, yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Wow. The other problem with this super spreader is that this person was there from the beginning, the very first uh, group of infections that came over. Was so that in January? This I, I believe was late January. So it wasn't just like I remember that we all kind of heard in the U.S. about. Seattle first, which is amazing because mm-hmm. we had just been Oh, there. my God, right? You guys yeah. remember? Yeah, I remember that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're like, ugh. And I'm we were safe. like all up in public. Oh, yeah, we, we, were, we were crawling into the crevices of that city for sure. <laughs> yeah. Licking doorknobs and everything. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Sneezing and, all over everything. Yeah, but but it really seems to be the case that the virus was coming over in most of the U.S., in, or at least in international airports. Um, sure, of course. In, in yeah. January, right? We just didn't know about it quite yet. So in a, in a re- very short amount of time, we had a very large number of people infected and the hospitals couldn't handle the load. Now, this is in New York that I'm talking about. So the statistics that are coming out of New York track very well with the statistics coming from China. So the provinces that had the most people infected in China also had the highest death rates in China. And what this means is that the hospitals in that region, they get overwhelmed. And once they get over, overwhelmed, the mortality rates dramatically go up. And that, so that's what happened in China. And that's what happened in New York City. And that's mm-hmm. what's happening everywhere. So as soon as the, the hospitals hit that limit, we're seeing that the mortality rates spike. And then that's a whole study all by itself. Why do they spike? Well, of course, you know we have a lot of problems with people not being able to get the care, not being able to get on ventilators, not being able to get around the clock observation, you know, because there's things that they can do in the moment. If something is happening, they they can come in and and do something to help with all the different things that can happen to someone. So it's also being determined that social distancing has a profound effect on the number of people that become infected. So epidemiologists pinpoint the first COVID-19 related death. This is how they figure it out. And this is how they, they proved that social distancing works. An epidemiologist will look at the first person that has COVID-19, they can prove it was COVID-19. And they say, okay, and this person died. Then they go back a number of weeks. So in this instance, they go back three weeks to determine when the first infection happened. The reason why they do that is they already knew that three weeks is the typical amount of time it takes for a person to die from the moment they're infected, right? So this information that they got from the World Health Organization and from China and other countries, they go back three weeks. They're like, okay, if this person died on this date three weeks ago, they got infected. Where were they? Who'd they interact with? You know, they they do all of that interpersonal research to figure out the origin of 
where it came from. You know, and, and this is just like that movie Contagion. If you haven't seen it, see it because it'll blow your mind. It's like this person is friends with someone that works at a shipyard and, that, and, the, the, and there's a missing monkey at the ship. You know what I mean? Like they just write the story of what happened and they can do that with all of these cases. And, and, you know, it's coming from people that came from overseas because ultimately the origin of this disease was overseas if you, if you live in the United States. So if social distancing starts too late – then the number of infections will obviously go up. Each infected person is likely to infect, like I said before, care two to three other people. And, and being that people can be infectious before they show any symptoms with this particular disease, social distancing is really the only way to truly tamp it down and to protect ourselves. So in New York, now here is the part that's going to make you weep. In New York, if social distancing started just two weeks earlier than it actually did, the death rate could have been decreased by 50 to 80%. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yep. So the, the idea behind social distancing is that we're trying to stop the virus from spreading before it gets a real foothold, right? Yep. And, yep. and days, I dare say, even moments really matter. You know, if you, again, if you watch that movie Contagion, you'll see like this person infected this person and then that person went over here and it's in a movie theater and now, you know, and bing, 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 and, it, and, it, and it explodes out horizontally like you wouldn't believe. Ugh. And there are still states, there are still states in the U.S. where they're not doing it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, it's heartbreaking. I think, I think that is one of the big reasons why our death rate is so much lower in California, because even though you're right, we didn't have quite the influx because although LAX is a big hub and weirdly LAX is a big hub for Asian countries, it's a, it's a smaller hub for European countries just because of where they are. Right. But we, we socially distanced early. We did it yeah. intensely. Like we mm-hmm. stuck to social distancing and we did it early and we were, can't think of the word, but yeah, we did it. Like we decided together compliant. as a, as a state and we were compliant. Yes. Yeah. And I think it made a big difference. Of course it does. I mean, Kara, that is the difference. Yeah. And that's why when we say, you know, the, the federal government didn't jump on this fast enough. Look, looking back. So the thing that's interesting is there's like, there's a few phases to the things you do to, to stem the pandemic. In the first phase, you are trying to limit travel, right? You're trying to limit importing the the virus into regions or exporting it from a region, right? And that's where testing is critical, tracking the the path of infection is critical, trying to shut down the nodes of spread is critical. But then and doing what it, a lot of countries did, right, Steve, which was yeah. like taking people's temperatures, looking for symptoms in the airports. Yeah. Like, and yeah, we were late. We were basically mm-hmm. too little too late in terms of preventing it from being imported into the U.S. But then once it's basically here and spreading around, that becomes ineffective and you can't keep up with it. Testing becomes actually less important and tracking routes of infection become less important. And that's when you need universal precautions. You just assume everyone has it and you act accordingly. That's the phase that we're still in right now. And that's, that's and the that, physical distancing. Right. But that as, dovetails right into my next part, Steve. Yeah. But then as it winds down, you go back to testing and, and targeted isolation, mm-hmm. which we're not there yet. But that's where we're ta- the discussion is when do we transition to that next phase? And Once we it, have the tests. It, Will it work and will we get a second wave if we don't do it exactly right, you know? It's that social distancing phase where people need to isolate themselves. And in the most densely populated regions in in New York City, to continue, one, financially well-off people versus 
a poor region, those mm. people who were able to work from home and supply themselves have less infection than a similarly sure. populated – and I'm talking dense population here, an amazingly mm. dense part of New York City that is has wealthy people in it and an amazingly dense part that has people who aren't wealthy. There's a big difference. The people who don't have the money typically don't have the same level of health care. They right. don't have the ability to to buy food for two weeks in one clip. They have to go every couple of days or every day, right? You know, mm-hmm. you're living living less than paycheck to paycheck, like moment to moment. You can't isolate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, th- this turns into, um, you know, you could say that the person's race has a factor because we can track people's income to a certain degree by what race they are. Massively. So the, the Washington Post analyzed data and they had infect- they were showing infection rates and found that African-Americans have three times the rate of infections and six times the death of uh, recovered COVID-19 versus similarly populated areas of white people. Mm-hmm. And this is not – this has nothing to do with their blackness and it has everything to do with their so- – the social – Socioeconomical. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's – and even beyond socioeconomic because it, it does have to do with their blackness in the sense that it has to do with entrenched racial institutional problems. Yep. You mm-hmm. know, I think the confusion is when people read the headlines and they go, oh, COVID-19 is targeting black people. No, it's not targeting them genetically. COVID-19 right, is a, more deadly to individuals of sense. color. Yeah, right. because our social systems our cult- are more deadly to individuals yeah. of color. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yeah, and if they don't have, they don't they disproportionately don't get as good health care, and that's a huge risk factor. You know, if you have mm-hmm. inadequately treated asthma, you're much more likely to die from this virus. You know? Yeah, and heart disease that, and diabetes. I mean, you know, it, it, all of these things could be treated with much, much better if you have the money yeah. and you have good doctors, right? That's the other thing. It's like with the level of doctors that you'll get yourselves in front of. And if um, you're living in a in a low-income housing district, you know, you're obviously also living around um, less education. You're living – like all of these things contribute. And one thing that we didn't mention, Jay, is that you are more likely to be an essential worker. You mm-hmm. are probably still having to go to work because yeah. you might be working in a janitorial service, in a food service job where people are depending on you right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, now you're you, exposed. Now, there's also questions about whether or not we can blame this on lack of tests. So the current data shows that people who need to be hospitalized are the ones who need to be tested the most, right? And I know mm-hmm. that that might seem counterintuitive, but if you get COVID-19 and your symptoms are life-threatening, meaning you you're having trouble breathing as an example. That's like the big gun here. Mm-hmm. You're having restrictive breathing or you're not you're, you're like saying I have shortness of breath and things are starting to go south in that area, then you're probably need to go see a doctor because there's mm-hmm. something, you know, the infection is is hitting you in the way that can kill you. But if you have the other, you know, if you have headaches and high a fever um and things like that that is something that you really don't need to go to the ER for. Um they're saying please stay home. You know, call your healthcare mm-hmm. provider, talk to people, talk to a professional about your symptoms. But in the end, you don't, the first move you make is not to drive yourself or, or have someone take you to the ER. You, you stay home. And then what will happen is your doctor will say, okay, let's, let's go through your symptoms. The doctor will help you make a very rational decision on whether or not you should go to the hospital. And the good news is that most people really don't need to go to the hospital. All right. But hang on. Yeah. Because I got to tell you, because I'm treating patients every day, right? Mm-hmm. I'm doing all telehealth except for my procedure clinics where I'm still going in. Just today, I mean, almost every day, I'm talking to people that if we were not in the middle of a pandemic, I would have brought them into the clinic, 
or sent them to the emergency room. Whoa. And I can't. Not because of COVID symptoms. No, no, because of something else. You know, like I got, I can't get into any details. I had a patient just today. I'm, I'm, you know, talking with them electronically and I'm like, shit, she needs to go to the emergency room. But she can't. She can't go to the emergency room because she's, first of all, she's exactly the kind of person who would die of COVID-19, like just not medically healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, having symptoms that require an examination and ideally testing. Yeah. And and they're telling me, listen, I'm not going to the emergency room. I'm like, I agree with you. You know, you shouldn't inside. Now it's it's a risk versus benefit thing. The risk of going to the ER is, is now higher than the risk of the things that I would yes. in ideal circumstances really want to rule out. But that means we have to accept a higher risk. Yeah, it's sad that we're in that position. Because the COVID-19 itself is such a high risk, especially for certain patients. So it's tough. So just, yes, we're talking to patients. I'm doing telehealth. I'm doing phone visits from people who don't who can't handle the, the video stuff. But it's like every patient, you know, I'm agonizing over like, uh, you know, this is not ideal. I, you know, yeah. not every patient. Some patients are fine. But I mean, I'm, I'm, every day I'm, I'm having one or two patients who are like, shit, this person, I really need to examine this person. Or they really need to be in the, in the office with their primary care doctor. Or they really need to be in the emergency room. So and you can't do it. It's tough yeah, out there. All the so downstream effects of this. Why haven't we done what we saw was very effective in China early on and what we often see, you know, Jay, you were referencing Contagion. What we saw was effective in the film Contagion. What we saw has been effective in um, the Congo, in Sierra Leone, in Liberia, mm-hmm. during these Ebola outbreaks, which is to have dedicated centers that only accept patients with these symptoms, and then other hospitals that are utilized for other illnesses. Yeah, so for that non-COVID, there is everything, everything else. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we don't have because we don't have the infrastructure. I think is That's the bottom line. Well, we could, we absolutely could have that infrastructure, but yeah, we if don't. we had yeah. thought about it sooner. Yeah, yeah no, exactly. Right, yeah. Now, yeah. The, because wanna, the thing is, we have hospitals, and why not make we, certain ones dedicated hospitals? Or I think because we're overwhelmed, Kara. That's yeah, the problem. Yeah, yeah. we would need we would need like hospitals. We would need, oddly, extra hospitals. You know what I and mean? And that's what they did in China. They just that's built what they that. did. They just like, built they just more straight hospitals. Up built hospitals. Like in two weeks. Yeah. We've been putting up two makeshift uh, places yeah. as well. Yeah. Not hospitals, but... But, guys, I want to clarify because Steve stopped me before I got to finish. So I just want to make sure everyone mm. understands. When I talk about don't go to the hospital, I'm talking about for COVID symptoms. If for you non-life have life-threatening COVID right, symptoms. So the life now Steve could say this better than I can, but I, I know it pretty damn well at this point. The life-threatening okay. symptoms really are a, incredibly high fever, really you know, a bad fever, or you you're having trouble breathing and getting oxygen. All the well, other let me clarify that further. I mean, don't tell yeah. people not to go to the hospital. Tell them to call your physician and <laughs> do what, what they tell you I to was do. Gonna, I was going to say that. If you don't okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so hurtful, so angry at me. <laughs> Right. No, but, it's, the, the messaging here has to be is very tricky. As I'm saying, we're threading the needle, man. There's really no optimal thing to do, and so we need to have you know more communication between physicians and patients, so that we could make very individualized decisions about exactly who needs physically mm. to come into the hospital and and who we could manage electronically. And know? the reason why this is so critical, guys, is that. If we can make the hospitals less crowded by only really having people go in that are in truly life-threatening situations, it makes it safer for the patients and it makes it safer for the healthcare workers. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Fewer people means less chaos, 
less money being spent and more time and energy that can be spent on the people who really need it. So again, to repeat what Steve said, the first thing you do if you're unsure, call your, your physician mm-hmm. and have your, have your primary care doctor tell you what to do. All right. Thanks, Jay. Welcome. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us about the efficacy of trying to sterilize masks so that they could be reused. Sterilize. Sterilize. <laughs> Sticking the same thing, Jay. So uh, <laughs> scientists recently took a look at how effective gamma radiation is at sterilizing PPE, specifically the, the N95 filtration masks. Uh, while keeping the masks effective at the same time. So this was done in like a partnership between uh, members of the Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering, NSE, uh, Boston's medical community, and of course, Bruce Banner Industries. Um, so <laughs> their, their question was, can gamma irradiation sterilize disposable N95 masks without diminishing the mask's effectiveness? The study was uploaded at the end of March to the Med Archive, which is the preprint server for health sciences, um, and researchers announced their results there. But before I get to that, let's talk about gamma radiation. What, what, is, yeah. what the hell is it? It's a, my favorite it, well, type. It makes the Hulk, right? It's yeah, my it's favorite like... kind of radiation. Um, it's a part Black of... Holes. Wait, Bob, you it's... have a favorite kind of radiation? Yeah. yeah. Of course Bob has a favorite <laughs> radiation. Yeah, yeah. Man. Man, I just love you so holes. much, Bob. It's, <laughs> gamma radiation. It's part, it's, like it's it, nothing. It's part of the electromagnetic spectrum. It's a type of light. Sure. It's light. Um, it's, uh, so you know that, you know how it goes. You get radio at the far, at one end, mm-hmm. or where I say the lame end of the spectrum. Uh, then you got microwave. <laughs> oh, we need those. Well, we do, but it's not as cool, man. Listen, wait, listen to, <laughs> listen to the end. Radio, microwave, infrared, visible. That's where we can see UV, visible. x-ray, gamma rays. Smallest wavelengths, <laughs> most packs the biggest punch, the most energy, more than any other, any other type. And it, this stuff will punch through metal and concrete barriers. This stuff yeah. is the real deal. It's created, um, outside of the earth, it's created an, you know, as you might expect, these catastrophic events in space, neutron stars, pulsars, supernova explosions, areas around black holes. On the Earth, uh, they're created, you can see them in nuclear explosions, lightning, um, radioactive decay. So there's a, I just want to throw a few cool, very interesting things about gamma rays that you might not be aware of. Hey, Bob. Yo. Do you know what my favorite <laughs> hypothetical <laughs> subatomic particle is? What? <laughs> the axion. Axion. Yes. Because it's the coolest name. I like it. I do, I do like that. <laughs> it sounds like Axon. So if you look at the... And you're, it's and a, you're a neurologist. It's something right out of the, the Incredibles, right? Yeah. Axion. So as you might think, the interiors of stars... Uh, uh, have lots of uh, gamma radiations, lots of intense stuff going on there. Now, those the gamma rays there, um, they keep the core hot, which is which is nice. But they they also <laughs> spend tens of thousands of years, literally, slowly making their way out of the sun. And though the collisions that they experience on their way out deplete the energy, making it making them longer and longer wavelengths of light. So the UV that gives you a tan, the infrared that warms the earth and the visible light that we actually see with our eyes are used to be gamma rays. So say thank you to gamma rays every time you get a sunburn or you see stuff and stuff like that. And in one more, one more little doodad, which is really cool. I, I forgot about this. We, and by that I mean me and you, but not Jay, we emit gamma radiation. We actually emit <laughs> it ourselves. So emit. A, yes, a 70 kilogram person emits 500 gamma rays every second. I assume that's you know photons um, every second. Um, and that's released by the potassium-40 in your body, and it's totally normal. Don't worry about it, but it's really cool. So what did they find? What did they do? They took their N95 masks, and they put them through their paces against a cobalt-60 gamma irradiation. And they, they, the masks 
passed the qualitative te- fit test. So they put it on, they fit it, they moved their, their face and they made expressions and the mask stayed, you know, it had, it kept its structural integrity, which is good. And they, and some people thought, oh, yay, we succeeded. Like, no, you got to look closer. When they took a closer look, they saw that it lost a significant degree of the filtration efficiency. And that's definitely, no. that's definitely not what the researchers wanted. So what happened? Yeah. The sterilized masks lost two thirds of their filtering efficiency. That's a good I chunk. Saw that. yeah, it's a lot. Uh, so the gamma rays turned the N95 masks essentially into N30 masks. Um, and the reason for this mm. is actually fascinating. That, and it, you, you need, thing? yeah, you need, um, uh, you need to act, you need to better understand how these masks work. And it's, they probably work in a way you don't think that they do. So the good masks don't, they don't really use mechanical filtration prim- primarily at all. They're really relying on an electrostatic based filtration. So if you imagine a mask, really? yes, yeah, if you look at the, if you look at these masks really, really close, you'll see these micron sized holes, very tiny. I mean, that's a thousandth of a millimeter, really small, but, but the, the electro, the electrostatic Propulsion, though, that's what that's what can actually uh, repel or even trap droplets that are smaller than a micron, say a third of a micron. And a lot of these COVID droplets can actually are, are around that range or maybe a little bigger, and they won't go through that micron-sized hole. They'll be repelled or trapped because of the elect- electrostatic repulsion. So that's that's very important. I was not aware of that. Uh, Rajiv Gupta, physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School said, our hypothesis is that ionizing radiation of whatever kind likely decharges the electrostatic filtration of the mask. The mechanical filtration of gauze can trap some particles, but radiation interferes with the electrostatic filter's ability to repel or capture particles of 0.3 microns. So that kind of stinks. But Gupta, it was actually, he's happy. He's kind of okay with these results because he said, even with lower efficiency, these N95 masks are much better than the surgical mask we use. Instead of throwing out N95 masks, they could be sterilized and used as N30 masks for the kind of procedures I do all day long. So that's, so that's some good news. Uh, so it wasn't ideal, wasn't maybe what they expected, but, but it's not still, useless. but not useless at all, according to Gupta. And uh, there was one cool idea uh, that came, a cool quote. Michael Short, who was one of the study's co-authors, he had a funny quote. He's like, one of our students thought gamma radiation might be a cool solution to a big problem, and I really wanted it to work. But we quickly recognized that the data went against the hypothesis. And I was thinking, that's totally me. If I was in there, I would be, yeah, let's use gamma <laughs> rays and see if they can help with this whole damn pandemic bullshit. Uh, that would have totally, <laughs> totally been me there. But even beyond, even beyond what I've discussed, there's a uh, uh, the results have been helpful in a lot in other ways. Study lead and co-author Avalash Kramer said there has never been a time when negative results are more significant. Publishing as quickly as we can means that others working on the same problem can direct their energies in different directions. Of course, right? Uh, that's that that's critical. You got, you, you're smacking down. Who was it? Um, Edison. Edison was like, yep. I, I didn't fail. You know what? He's like, I didn't fail uh, a thousand times. I, I, I oh yeah, succeeded he didn't once. Find, yeah, he didn't. Uh, I, I didn't fail. I just, uh, I just showed two thousand ways to not make a light bulb or something, or something like that. Yeah. I don't know what you're going to do with that, Steve. Delete that shit. I guess. Um, <laughs> so, uh, Jesus, and beyond that, <laughs> and beyond that, they also did something else uh, remarkable. The speed and, and multidisciplinary cooperation was really, really something to be proud of. Hmm. I'll end. Up, I'll end with one more quote from Short. He's like, the study 
took nine days from start to finish. It was the fastest I've, I've ever done anything by orders of magnitude. And uh, he, he finished by mm. saying, every piece of our hastily assembled machine worked perfectly. We demonstrated that when a crisis hits, scientists can come together for the greater good and do what needs to be happened. And that's one of the, one of the great things we're seeing with this, this whole pandemic is people coming together, mm-hmm. focusing on this problem. And, uh, and you've got so many people focusing on this that I, I think we're going to make some ama- – we're going we're gonna to make a decade's worth of progress in the next six months, I think, in, in combating this type of stuff. Even more generalized, just pandemics in general, we're going to make so many advances. And yeah, this really sucks and it's horrible and uh, so many people are dying. But we will, we will be so much better prepared for the next pandemic uh, after you – know, once we go through and learn what we're going to learn and create what we're going to create. Yeah, right? It's going to be something to be – it's going to be amazing. Yep. We're learning the hard way, but – yeah, Bob. Yeah. I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Yes, that's the quote. Ex- exactly. <laughs> Opportunity cost. Edison. 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 Oh, yeah. that is awesome. Yeah, and when he says I, he means his many minions. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> All the people who did the real work and he just claimed the credit, right? Oops, controversial too soon. <laughs> Sorry. Too soon. No. <laughs> no, Edison was an asshole. Um, (laughs) he found 10,000 ways to be an asshole hey Kara I understand that archaeologists have found the oldest string yes I love this story and you know why this story feels very relevant to me today it feels relevant because you're knitting and knitting (laughs) and knitting and knitting knitting. (laughs) well sort of it's because I don't know about you guys but being at home right now, I'm getting very crafty. So it's not just that I'm knitting. I'm making soap. I'm making candles. I've started making bath bombs again Ooh. and shower soothers. They're my favorite. Ooh, I need to send you guys some shower soothers. What, what is that? You soak yourself in the shower? Let me tell you. So it's kind of like a bath bomb, but it's uh-huh. got <laughs> menthol crystals and you use peppermint and eucalyptus oil in them. And you put them on the floor of your shower in the corner like out of the stream but they still get splashed and so while you're taking a shower it like steams up with this really like nasal passage clearing scent i love it it's so great when you're feeling sniffly which i've been feeling lately you know what i did kara what i started a video series i've been watching it steve yeah how did i not know this what's it about it's called a skeptical consult with dr steven novella i love that really really good so far yeah and uh, you can, they're on our YouTube channel, Facebook page, other things. Yeah, I've been talking about it for a while, and I thought it'd be a good opportunity to do it. And of course, Jay's like, "All right, first we have to perfect these twenty aspects of the video <laughs> before we can publish the first one." And I'm like, "No, we're just gonna no, do it. Just do it. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna build this plane evolve. as we're flying it." Metaphor right. we've heard a lot recently. So the thing I knew the thing that would light a fire under Jay and Ian's ass, <laughs> uh-huh. fix all those things. If I just start putting up shitty videos, yes, then, yeah, that's how that oh, works. we had a <laughs> yes. we had an intervention meeting on the, on the internet today. Ian calls me up he's like jay gotta talk to steve right i'm like i know i'm so pissed we're like, <laughs> no, we're just, we're about exactly the response i was looking for <laughs> action i was fine i saw the first one and it was really good really really effing good fantastic yeah, idea good. but my, i gotta say my favorite part was the last half second steve's done and i hear <laughs> in the background his wife jocelyn's adorable voice saying that was good 
That was good. <laughs> it was awesome. I, lo- I was laughing my ass off. And I told Joss, I said, Joss, you got to do that at the end yes. of every episode. Yeah, yes. it'll be like for your production company, how they always have that little thing at the end of every TV yeah. show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's a little Easter egg or something. Oh, Seriously. That's so cool. Well, here's the thing, you guys. This is human ingenuity at its finest. And maybe I shouldn't even say human, but instead homo or hominin ingenuity, yeah. because that's what this story I that I wanted to talk about today. Yeah, it really is. So the oldest string seems to date back to f- between 41,000 and 52,000 years ago. And uh-huh. because of its location and its age and the site where it was found, it puts it squarely within the hands, not of Homo sapiens, but Neanderthal. of Neanderthals. Oh. Yeah, which is amazing. So it's amazing. the previous record holder, kind of like well-confirmed record holder of a thread or string-like fiber was 19,000 years old in an Israeli site. This new uh, finding, which is actually not that new, but it's a kind of more um, bolstered finding that was just published only a few days ago, is in a cave in France. And that cave is called the Abre no, sorry, Abri du Mara site. And they're actually previous... Um, papers that have been published out of that site, one of which does talk about a string fiber, um, but it was very degraded and it was kind of more of a hypothesis and could have gone either way. But researchers back at the site found a tool and they found this fiber kind of connected to this tool and looking at this fiber uh, using spectroscopy and microscopy techniques, they were able to say, yes, it was a three-ply string. So it was twisted with three different um, pieces um, that were all twisted themselves and then twisted among themselves. And they think that it probably came from the inner bark of something like a conifer tree while it was still soft, because it's the pulpy portion of the tree. And, you know, we found, or you guys remember probably, we've even talked about them on the show previous examples of finding birch bark tar different types of art um, especially shell beads so you know jewelry from neanderthals and um, now we have pretty well established evidence that they were also able to use fibers and this is huge because fibers are the basis of rope they're the basis of bags, of baskets, you know, weaving. They're the basis of clothing. And ultimately, they're the basis of boats. So if you can make fiber, you can make a lot of stuff. And we thought of these as being very quintessentially human endeavors. But, you know, the more we study these Neanderthal uh, Paleolithic sites, the more that we understand about them. The problem is that historically, we can only find remains of animals or stone tools at these sites. And that's just a function of the fact that those are the things that tend to survive, right? Things like fiber tend to break down over time. And I mean, when we're talking 41 to 52,000 years ago, it's pretty lucky that this fiber lasted. Oh, yeah. So some, some other kind of cool things about it is that when you talk to um, anthropologists, when you talk to individuals who study, um, you know, brain cases of these uh, of of these hominids, um, and you start really talking about or speculating at least about cognitive capacity, it does seem to be the case that the ability to produce fiber, or at least to produce the string that ultimately could make up fiber, requires some sophistication. You probably need to have some basic numeracy 
you need to understand, you know, uh, quantities because they were threading these things in groups of three um, and twisting them together to make them stronger. The lead author on the study, Bruce Hardy, actually um, told a reporter at Gizmodo, quote, the cognitive abilities for making string and rope are very similar to those for making language. This speaks to the cognitive abilities of Neanderthals. And I'm not really sure what he meant by that. Obviously, these are different parts of the brain, but I think they do show a level of cognitive sophistication that um, more and more, we're, whenever we find this kind of evidence, makes us rethink what place Neanderthals had in the evolutionary and really the cultural history of the hominid lineage. Um, it's just very cool. And I wouldn't yeah, be surprised yeah. if we find more, more cool stuff like this, the more we look for it. Yeah. I mean, they were our close cousins. Yeah, you know, and we we did the nasty with them. Yeah, like we know this. totally. Yeah, yeah. Like two two percent of our genes are Neanderthal. Yeah, so there must yeah. have been something about them that was like you know interesting enough, <laughs> you know, that they yeah. they seemed human, I should say, or at least species specific enough. They were similar enough that there was attraction yeah. there. But yeah, very very cool. I mean, I it's something as simple as like, oh yeah, old string. You know, it's so easy to just pass over a headline like that. Oh, old string, whatever. And then you really start to think about what does it take no, to be able to utilize string? And what could yeah. you ultimately make from string? If Neanderthals hadn't died off, I mean, I think there's no question that they would be um, a separate but but very similar species living today that had all the same skills as Homo sapiens. Can you imagine mm. how weird that would be? I know. I mean, it would be weird because they're not used to it, but yeah. Yeah, no, it, it might be totally it be really normal. Interesting. But it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it would be normal to us, but it would still, and we do, you know, think about the racism that would exist with an actual oh gosh, different species. Why, why is that not, that show not been made for like HBO yet? Yeah, it's interesting. That would be cool. Like a, like a modern kind of homo sapien, Neanderthal, Denisovan like world where they mm-hmm. had never died off. That would be really yeah, cool. Yeah, that would be a very cool thought experiment. And yeah. Kara, Kara, this is material science. You expressed boredom (laughs) for material science, but that's exactly what this is. And, you know, mastering a new material is massive. That's a huge technological feat. And it's still, even where we are today, we still rely on a few core materials, you know, for our civilization. And and whole civilization. So not only does all of civilization rely, you're right, on these core materials, but also whole economies, whole Mm -hmm. industries um, really have thrived for thousands of years based on things like basket weaving, based on boat making, based on, you know, producing obviously clothing. It's, It's one of the oldest crafts, but it's, you know, we haven't been able to replace it with something more modern. Um, it seems to be, you know, fundamentally important. And the thing that's interesting, I know we, I talked about this before, is that wood-based technology was huge, it still is, and very advanced. Like we would get our, our kerosene or wood oil, you know, and uh, it really was supplanted by fossil fuels. Yeah, and you see something similar with these early um, fibers. I mean, maybe not these ones from 40,000 years ago that came from tree bark, but in essence, you know, um, clothing was made from cotton. It was made from these different renewable fibers, bamboo and things like that. And then, of course, we started to develop these different polymers for fiber, and now we're starting to realize the, you know, the pollutant um, nature mm-hmm. of these plastic-based fibers that are never going to be able to break down. Um, and so a lot of people are going back to making sure that they wear these more renewable fibers for that very reason. Yeah, neat. Dress string. like the Neanderthals. Yeah, wear string. that string, guys. 
All right. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about a new sponsor that we have this week, Literati. Literati is a subscription book club that makes it easy to find unique and fun books to read with your kids, and they are delivered straight to your doorstep. Guys, this is a box of books so that you never run out of really great reading material with your kiddos. And here's a great part as well. You get to keep your favorite books, send back the rest for free, no charge to you. That means you're only paying for the books that you and your kids love. So I got to tell you, I got my Literati box. This one was for Dylan. That was the first one that we're doing. I went through all the books with him. We read all of the books. We like all the books, so we're going to keep them. But the other cool thing that they do, there's a little surprise in here. I don't want to give it away. But there's like a, a, a personalized letter to him, and there's like an activity packet that's in here that is really adorable. And they also like have like a poster that they give you, like this cool, very beautifully illustrated poster that we got. I'm really blown away by this. For a limited time, go to literati.com slash SGU for 25% off your first two orders. That is their best offer available anywhere. To get it, you have to go to literati, L-I-T-E-R-A-T-I dot com slash SGU for 25% off your first two orders. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Kara, do you know what demand characteristics means? I think I do, but I also know that you wrote a whole article about it this yeah, week. I'm pretty yeah. sure you do, but other you guys ever hear of that term? Demand I had not heard it before you wrote it, no. Steve, no. I had So, not. all right. Like desirability bias, but even more than that? Yeah, so it refers to when subjects in a study say what they think the researcher wants to hear. Yes. Right, rather than what they're really experiencing or whatever. So it's an artifact in psychological research. I do want to back up a bit, though, because, Jay, you were talking earlier in the show about our relationship to science and what that means to us. And I want to add a layer of nuance to that because this is, you know, I, th I this is a line that I live on in a way in my blogs and, you know, science communication, especially at science-based medicine, because, you know, as skeptics, and this goes all the way back to Carl Sagan, right, we simultaneously are skeptical and critical but also enthusiastic cheerleaders for science, right? Mm -hmm. And those two things coexist. And what I find is that most people who aren't scientists, aren't skeptics, like aren't science communicators, they, aren't, they don't live in that world. They don't get that. You know, they think that any criticism of science, they're either scandalized by it, they think that all of science is bunk, or at the other end of the spectrum, they're like just totally gung-ho for science and don't really recognize the, you know, the weaknesses inherent in the human endeavor of science. But how do we um, make it better if we can't be critical? Yeah, so, the, but we're sort of trying to, to establish that nuanced balance where like, you know, again, science-based medicine, we do this all the time. We're like seriously critical of peer-reviewed journals, of, mm -hmm. you know, the, of p-values of, you know, scientific methodology, et cetera, et cetera, uh, of the literature, but as a way of making it better, right, Karen? Not yeah. saying not saying it's bunks. Like we get there eventually, but we can get there a lot more efficiently if we fix these problems. Okay, so that's the background for this for this article that I'm going to talk about. So this is something that like there's so many layers here that were awesome. So scientists published an article basically saying that the set of research used to establish the rubber hand illusion failed to control for a critical element in that research, specifically demand characteristic. Mm. I've been writing a lot uh. about the quote unquote rubber hand illusion. It's also called the, uh, you know, like the 
ownership illusion or the ownership phenomenon. Essentially, our brains actively construct the, the subjective perception that we own, occupy, and control our various body parts and our whole body. Agency. Just a, just, no, not agency. That's a separate concept. Okay. Agent, agency means that you get to act on your own volition, right? Uh, that you are an agent. You, you determine your own actions. That's what agency means. But control is different. Like, so like there's – you guys heard of alien hand syndrome, right? I've spoken that, yeah. about that a lot. Oh, it's yeah. the idea that your, your hand is acting on its own, not, not – you don't control it. It's just doing things as if it were, had its own intelligence. But that's mm-hmm. an illusion. You're, it's just that you're, the feedback that you should be getting confirming that what you, what you want, what you commanded your hand to do, it actually did – is missing. And so you're just missing that subjective, you know, closing the loop on that subjective constructed sense of control. There's a, there's actually a fairly robust literature supporting this whole notion. Uh, however, the part that the, that the new paper is looking at is, is the rubber hand uh, paradigm studies where you basically have a mannequin hand, a rubber hand, whatever, or other body part, and you synchronize visual and tactile stimulation. So the subject can see the fake hand being touched, you know, like stroked on the back of the hand, for example, uh, when the back of their hand is being touched in an identical way so that Mm. they see and feel the rubber hand being touched. And 40% of the time or so, that's enough to trigger the... uh, illusion of ownership then your your brain thinks okay that's my hand because i'm seeing and feeling it at the same time right even though it's clearly not your hand because it's rubber right because it's it's, yeah. it's a mannequin's hand yeah this has also been done virtually you know what you can possess a virtual avatar that mm. is if you know if you have a camera behind you sure and then you're looking at your back right with, with say vr goggles and then somebody touches you on the back of your shoulder. So now you see the avatar being touched and feel it in the same time and place. That synchronization, certain percentage of the time, some people will feel like they are occupying the avatar. When my phone's in my pocket and I think it's vibrating when it's not, is that the same idea? No, but that's been identified. Eh. There's a, there's a, a phantom vibration sensation. Yeah. Cause I know my phone is there. It's, but my body, I get that sensation when my phone's not there. I just think wow. it's, I think that's more peripheral. Yeah. I think that's more just the nerves are just are, are sensitive because they're, they're um, it's kind of a phantom sensation. But right. I don't. I think it's probably my guess would be that it's more peripheral. I don't know that we fully understand it yet. But okay. that's it's kind also of a type described. of like touch pareidolia, Steve. I think. Yeah, and there's an expectation because you have something similar with hearing your phone ring, even though your phone's not ringing, or yeah, yeah like your the, name the, being called. But you're right, Evan. Right. That's a yeah. tangent I don't want to get into. So let's go. Yes, I was <laughs> on with this item. <laughs> I was right. So. In, so with that research, though, uh, the, the problem is that how do you control for the subjects in the research actually feeling as if they own the rubber hand versus just telling the researcher that they feel that way because that's what they think they're supposed to say, right? Because huh. that's, that's the quote-unquote demand characteristic. Well, what did they use as a quote-unquote control in the study. So what they're saying is that they, yeah, they, they didn't have, so this is a quote from Lush, who is the author of the paper, Dr. Peter Lush. He's the, the, uh, he's the lead author. He said, substantial correlations between response to the rubber hand illusion and response to imaginative suggestion or phenomenological control in a large sample of 353 participants. So that's what, that's actually the study that he did. It's not yet Mm -hmm. published in the peer reviewed literature. So it's just, it's a preprint paper. So he's saying 
that, yeah, the people who respond positively to the rubber hand illusion also score high on imaginative suggestion scales. So how do we yeah. know these people are not just imaginative? You know, they're not just imagining that they feel this not, and not that they actually do. So it may be more of a psychological phenomenon than a neurological phenomenon, if that makes sense. Yeah, they might be the same people who would be able to be quote unquote hypnotized. Right, right. Yeah. And the same thing, is hypnosis really something that happens or is just people responding to, is that is hypnosis completely a demand characteristic yeah, which right. i i personally believe that it is it's it's pure suggestion yeah it's again this is, character. it's interesting this is a huge tangent but yeah i think mm -hmm. you're yeah, I would say it's mostly that there's also i think the the legitimate aspect of quote-unquote hypnosis is um is how you divert and control the attention because you could pay attention in different ways and if you can True. control how people are paying attention then that could influence what perceptions they process and perceive etc but mm. that's a, that's about it though but yeah you're not in a different state and no. you know like making people dance like chickens on stages i think it's a hundred percent demand characteristic. And, and you cannot hypnotize somebody who doesn't want to be hip like who who resists hypnos hypnosis you, you kind of have to go along with it yeah yeah it's right. the only way right, it works right. all right so here's the thing so i think that lush's criticism is absolutely valid and that this is mm -hmm. something that needs to be shored up in this aspect of this research, that they need to do better controls to specific... He's not saying that it is demand characterizing. He's saying that it hasn't been adequately ruled out. And that his data says is a suggestion that it could be a part of the phenomenology. So future research... And this is what I like about his paper is that he's saying, hey, here's a hole that you didn't adequately plug. Here's how you can plug it going forward. So it would tighten up the research and make it better and make us more confident in the results. But here's why I don't think that like the rubber hand illusion is going to go away when we add these better controls. Because I think that he's talking about the psychological literature, mm -hmm. but this dovetails with neurological literature, which is very different, right? So, I mean, phenomenologically, for example, we can examine and interview patients who've had a stroke, who have damage to part of their brain, and then suddenly, you know, we'll have a very bizarre experience that we sort of have to tease out because we know how to examine them. Like, for example, they may have a phantom limb. They may have a supernumerary phantom limb, or they may feel like a body part of theirs doesn't belong to them, or... They may feel like they don't control that body part or they might have an out-of-body ex experience. And these are all more, you know, these are clearly neurological phenomenon established more concretely, you know, with neuroanatomical correlates and actual pathology, et cetera. Yeah, like you can find the etiology. You, you know what's yeah. going on in their brain. But the interesting thing, Steve, is that you almost can't decouple that from the psychological experience because the symptomatology is purely psychological. Sure, the etiology is neurological. You can look in their brain and see what's happening, but the way they describe it and the way that they experience it is psychology. No, absolutely. But what I'm just saying is that this establishes multiple independent lines of evidence. Yeah. It's not entirely based upon the rubber hand paradigm of research uh, where you're artificially creating it in a situation. Yeah. You know, when people you're have right. a, And that's like just cog psych in a way. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like people have a stroke and then they start reporting bizarre symptoms to their neurologist. That's not demand characteristics. You know, that's just doesn't... It's not the right context for that. yeah. Have you they done I mean? rubber hand studies in an fMRI? Uh, yeah, yeah, they have. Uh, they also there was a, my favorite one was they did acupuncture 
on the rubber hand, and it worked just as well. Oh, 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 oh that's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's of course Steve, that is elegant. <laughs> Steve, you mentioned supernumerary phantom limb. That's cool. So they, they what, they imagine they've got like a third arm coming out of their chest or, or something? Arm. Yeah. It's usually <laughs> Why coming, would it be coming out of their chest? It's usually, yeah. yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 like it's, it's, a, it's a third arm, so it's got to come out of somewhere. What are you it's thinking, It's going to be right back. under one of your other arms. And yeah, usually come feel, they feel like it comes out underneath one of their existing arms. Oh, interesting. Uh, Bob, there's a case. <laughs> of somebody who had six supernumerary limbs. Yeah. Whoa. So he was Spider-Man. literally Doc Ock. But yeah, only, Doc only, Ock. <laughs> only in his well. mind. <laughs> only in his mind. Yeah. Interesting. Oh, wow. Interesting place to be. No, so huh. like we know these circuits are in there, right? Yeah. Like we know these circuits. We have the neuroanatomical correlates. The question really is, can we so easily induce the illusion? That's the part that we don't know. But it makes sense because the circuits are there. We shouldn't accept it just because it makes sense and because the research that we have supports it when we didn't fully rule out alternative interpretations. So this gets to something we talk about a lot on the show. And Karen, and I, you and I you talk, talk about this the most because this is our area of expertise. And that is the, the notion that you have a construct, right? And a construct mm-hmm. is just a way of making sense of people's behavior in a study. Right, you have some way of interpreting what that behavior means, and but but it is it, we're not really looking at what's happening in the brain. We don't know what's really going on in the minds of the subjects. We just have a construct that is an explanatory model of what we think is going on. Yeah, yeah. Like or I think a famous recent example we've talked about on the show several times is the marshmallow test, which stood oh, yeah. for decades as a construct of executive function children who have more executive function can hold out longer you know you're offered a marshmallow say you could eat this marshmallow now or if you wait a few minutes i'll be back with a second marshmallow then you can have two but if you eat it now you don't get the second one the assumption is that all the kids are going to want two marshmallows the and so the interpretation was if you can hold out that that shows you have executive function and that then correlates with a whole bunch of positive things later in life that stood for decades until someone said wait a minute what if the kids who don't hold out are from lower socioeconomic status situations where yeah, they they're food don't, insecure. They don't trust adults. And they don't trust adults. And, and yeah. they because they right. because they're not going to be back with a second marshmallow. So they take a bird in the hand, which yep. is a perfectly rational response if you live in a food yeah, as you say, Kara, food insecure environment. And of course, that <laughs> yeah. also correlates with all the negative outcomes that they you know, correlated it with previously. So that was just somebody saying, hey, wait a minute, maybe we could reinterpret this entire body of research with another, from another angle. And it didn't completely take it away. I think executive function is playing a role there, but it gave us a, an entirely new perspective on this research. So hey, you, we have to ask these questions. We have, and it's great if somebody can come up and say, hey, there's another way to interpret the way people are behaving in this study. Now we have to do more studies to try to cl- plug that hole or to see what's going on. That's yeah. fantastic. That's fantastic. But that's why I try to get people out of this notion of, well, a study showed this. Somebody did a study and Single it showed study, X. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah not- that's why in science or fiction, anytime it's like a study showed, I'm like, well, that's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you know, right. But that's why I only do that if I think it's part of a bigger research yeah. you know, program that's legitimate and that I buy it. But, but I know, but, but it's idea, problematic. Steve, of- of constructs, right? Like yeah. this is all of cognitive psychology. Yeah, I know. It's 
developing like schemas, basically, is developing these models for how things happen. And only with the advent of modern neuroscience as cognitive psychology, there's kind of two camps. Well, I don't want to make it that clear, but I find when I read cognitive psychology mm. articles, I get frustrated sometimes because there's the side of cog psych as a field that utilizes modern neuroscience and tries to kind of square the circle of these schemas with how the brain, how we know the brain to work. And then there's the side that says, I'm just going to ignore modern neuroscience and I'm going to talk about constructs in a language that doesn't require you know anything about the brain. And that becomes kind of complicated for yeah. me as a reader because my background is in neuroscience. And I'm like, why are they making up all these words? And why are they yeah. talking about this in this really like convoluted way when we know what's happening? So, but, Kara, let me read you my last couple sentences because I totally sure. agree with that. This, so okay. this is what I wrote. Uh, because psychological research is subject to so many different models of interpretation, we need to explore as many different interpretations as possible. This will only make the conclusions more robust. This is also why we need to tie psychological research to neuroanatomical correlates and brain yes. function as much as possible because that provides some of the independent lines of evidence we need to know if our constructs are actually based in reality. Yes. And right? the problem, I think, and I guess the question I have for you, Steve, based on this question about demand characteristics, especially as they relate to the um, rubber hand illusion and sort of as they relate to what we were talking about just last week. Was it last week or the week before? I think, Jay, it was your news article. And we started talking about coerced confessions mm -hmm. and people saying that they committed crimes that they didn't commit. Oh, no, mm -hmm. it was, the was science, science or fiction. fiction. Yes. Yeah. These all kind of relate. But the question is, for all intents and purposes, it's interesting to know why, but does it ultimately matter? Because whether somebody says that they feel it because they feel pressures from the researcher or whether they say that they feel it because there's something going on neurologically is the experience, the subjective experience to them the same. So I would say no. Okay. Uh, because it's all, it could be, here's why. Like, for example, if people say they have less pain, is not the same thing as when they actually have less pain. Because when we do have independent ways of measuring how much pain they have, like how much pain medication are they using, for example, mm -hmm. they diverge. So we know that just reporting something is not the same thing as the thing itself. To put it another way, there are similar behaviors, maybe even indistinguishable behaviors, that may have their origins in different parts of the brain. And sure. we, we need to know what part of the brain that is to really understand it phenomenologically. As, again, as neurologists, we confront this all the time. And we have our cute uh, phrases that we use so that we can talk about it without other people knowing what we're saying. Like, for example, we'll say, I think this might be super tentorial. Have you ever heard that term, Kara? <laughs> no, what does that mean? Tentor so, super yeah, tentorial. Basically means it's psychiatric. Yeah. Uh, we're saying it's, you know, it's in the higher part of the brain the, you know, it's not it's not a lesion. It's the patient's belief that they have a lesion. Sure. Now that those are two. They may they may result in the same behavior, the same re report of subjective subjective symptoms, but they're very different neurologically. Yeah. The, th the the only real difference, Kara, is that in neurology we're we're talking about often not always, but often we're talking about pathology that we mm -hmm. can ultimately see, and in psychology psychiatry. We're not really talking about pathology that you could see. We're talking more about functional disorders. And so, but I still, that, that doesn't mean that the differences of underlying neuroanatomical correlates are not meaningful. They're just harder to tease apart. 
I agree that they are meaningful, but I also agree that agree that it has to do more with yeah the field that you're working within and the operational definitions that you're using. So from a, a knowledge perspective, understanding these roots is important. But then from a treatment yeah. perspective, yeah, it's interesting to see that for you. Obviously, the neurological basis for these things is important if you want to be able to treat these things neurologically. Mm. And for me, as a person who actually doesn't subscribe to a school of psychology that is pathology based, and I'm talking mm. behavior pathology now i actually subscribe to one that is more uh kind of like strengths based and like you it doesn't really diagnose unless absolutely necessary and blah 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 um you know that's i'm gonna leave that to a psychiatrist to prescribe the right medications yeah, right. If, a, if a if i'm seeing a schizophrenic patient but i'm not gonna treat his schizophrenia from a from a therapeutic perspective i'm gonna talk to him about his life problems. I agree with you, Kara, but I think that we're talking about two different contexts as well. Oh, let me just we say are, there, there yeah, are, totally different there, contexts. But there are, there's another, there's another two different contexts that I'm talking about here. There's huh. the pragmatically, what are we going to do at our current yes. state of knowledge, which is what you're talking about, yeah. but also how are we going to push our knowledge forward? In order to push our knowledge forward, I think we need to understand the difference. But from dealing with a patient pragmatically today, mm-hmm. if we don't currently know the difference, you treat it from a practical point of view. It doesn't matter. What it, the only thing that matters is the clinical outcome. But it, right, so it's different. Yeah, and that's a, about, also a big difference between between research and practice. Yeah, you know, in it's many clinical ways. versus they, yeah, yeah. They go, they, you know, they go they, hand in hand. Yeah, they go hand but, in hand, but. Yeah, I'm trying to treat a person's mental health. Like, how do they feel? And that's, you know, from a psychological perspective, just as important to me as treating their disease would be from a medical perspective, if they had one, right? Because the outcome for the person, you're right, it all comes down to the person. I'm not talking about people in general. I'm talking about the person who's the only thing that matters. The point I'm making is people have dismissed the legitimacy of therapy yeah. because it's not treating pathology. It's like, well, that's a category yeah. mistake. You're missing the context of what the therapy is doing. Okay, we, let's totally. move on. Evan, we're going to finish up with a cool news item about putting a telescope on the moon. What? Yeah, very cool. Very cool news item. Yeah, last week, NASA announced uh, a new set of grants for new innovative space projects. Now, these grants were awarded as part of their Innovative Advanced Concepts Award, NASA's Innovative Advanced Concepts, NIAC. So the idea behind this program is that NASA invests in early-stage technology ideas. And this year, they selected 23 potentially revolutionary concepts, uh, total awards valuing $7 bucks a preliminary of beginning research for these projects. Now, one of the most interesting ones... And the one that's gotten headlines the last few days is this plan to fit a one kilometer wide uh, diameter, I believe, uh, radio telescope inside a crater on the far side of the moon. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So the moon will then look like the Death Star. Well, yeah, that's basically it. That's how it was described in some of these news, news items. Yeah. I think Axios had it. NASA's plan to turn the moon into a telescope looks like the Death Star. <laughs> 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 it basically does. If you, you know, that main dish or that indentation yeah. area yeah, of, the yeah, de- yeah. of the Death Star, basically. It's so cool. And you know what? It's about time, right? The moon's been living <laughs> rent-free with all the benefits of Earth's gravitation. It's time we turn this <laughs> rocky parasite into something useful right no i'm kidding i've said many times before i love the moon just as much as anyone else on the planet except maybe that guy who wants to marry the moon yeah but other than that i love the moon uh it's called the lunar crater radio telescope lcrt 
Far Side of the Moon. It was proposed by Saptarshi Bandopadhyay. He's a robotics technologist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. He's been granted the Phase 1 award. It's $125,000 to fund a nine-month study of this idea. Now, unfortunately, mm-hmm. we can't get our hopes up too high for this project, not just yet, because this project is just basically in phase one. It's going to take more than a decade to get to its full development, if it even gets that far. Yeah. Yeah. So these things take a while. But it's really a fascinating idea, and it is, I think, a good idea worthy of deeper investigation, and I'm glad that they chose this one. All right. What's so good about or what's so cool about turning a crater on the far side of the moon into a telescope? Well, in the world of radio astronomy, that's the brass ring, baby, because you would be able to measure wavelengths and frequencies. Yeah, one of them. But I mean, it is really an ideal environment. You can measure wavelengths, frequencies that can't be detected from Earth and not even from telescopes that you put into orbit around Earth. It's unobstructed by the ionosphere and various other bits of radio noise that are out there that surround the planet and just kind of exist in space. So the uh, body of the moon itself acts as a barrier against a lot of these things. Even the sun is putting out noise that the body of the moon will help uh, deflect against. So I didn't know this, but on Earth, we cannot pick up uh, wavelengths greater than 10 meters. Uh, that's because of the disturbances and everything. However, if you're going to put this thing on the moon, you can get anywhere from 10 to 50 meters of wavelength, which is, which is a huge, huge, huge advantage. And also the engineering sort of behind this is is rather cool as well. What you do is is you put up, you launch up to the moon these devices, which will basically take care of themselves. You've got this uh, lunar landing operation capsule with uh, a couple of pieces. It separates on the moon. One goes into the crater. One stays outside the crater. And the little guy who's inside the crater basically is going to weave this net (laughs) effectively that will turn the crater into the parabolic radio dish that's it's so cool it's spherical reflector it will use one full dish to collect the radio data as opposed to arrays that we use here on this planet and it'll be much larger much larger than anything we have here on earth at current at at the current moment so really really neat stuff and uh hey look i mean seems plausible although one of my questions and i looked for it i couldn't quite get it to at least maybe this is what the nine month study is going to reveal. All right, where's your crater candidate? You know, how do you find the right crater? And does it, I imagine it has to, it has to fit within certain, you know, specifications in order to be able to accomplish this. Cause not all, you know, craters are not just these perfectly perfect divots, you know, they've got all yeah, sorts of to, imperfections. Like, and other it, things. Like, use, like, yeah. I'm wondering if it? you would have to send up something ahead of it in order to carve out or knock away mm-hmm. parts that you would need to either flatten or like build up bull- or bulldozers. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Effectively. And it would all have to be, I think robotic for the most part. And how effective yeah. is that part, you know, how plausible is that part of it? You know, the idea itself is great, but, you know, uh, actually finding the right place to do this could be could be a, a lot huge of challenge. lot of big craters on the far side of the moon. Right? Yeah, a lot of big ones. Yeah, a lot of candidates. What about the actual machined parts? Are they all flown up small and then like assembled in place or yeah. is it brought up in like big pieces? So it is described as this. Little guy. I mean, if you look at a picture of it, it almost looks like this rover in a sense that goes up there, goes into the crater and starts unfolding all the guide wires and other things that are going to be needed. 
and rolls around and stretches it from point A to point B, goes back down to the center, takes the next piece, unfolds it to point C to point like D. Like a little spider. Yes. A little Essentially, oh, that's, kind, that's kind of the idea. I don't know if you would need maybe more than one of these things to do it because who knows how much time that also, you know, would, would take. Mm-hmm. That could, it could take years to, just alone to unfold the thing. And that's barring any technical mishaps or other complications that are usually, you know, predicted, but sometimes unforeseen and you have to work around. Right. So a lot of, lot of hurdles, a lot to jump over. But I think the idea is, is very, very neat. And it, you know, it's kind of, there's something romantic about it. I think turning uh, the moon into, into a telescope that, you know, we can make immediate use of here, uh, here on planet Earth. Well, I think once we have the bigger picture is once we have a good infrastructure on the moon, it's a great place to do astronomy. You know, no atmosphere. Yep. Yeah. Even nice sol- and dark. Solar yeah. collectors would be very efficient even when the sun is on the horizon. Yeah. Um, all right. Thanks, Evan. Good stuff. Thanks. Jay, it's Who's That Noisy Time. Okay, guys. Last week I played this noisy. Very dramatic. Yeah, it reminds me of a scene from Eyes Wide Shut or something. <laughs> yeah. It goes on. It goes on. Like, we had a couple of regulars on here. Visto Tutti. He read. <laughs> I love that guy's name. Visto Tutti. You know, I just expect him to be in, like, the Roman army, you know. <laughs> this week's Noisy is a sonification of an impulse event with some harmonics. I can hear... The somewhat Gaussian distribution in the intensity, but I'm not sure what the choice of notes represents. So I will say that this is a sonification of seismic activity and earthquake, if you will. No. Not correct, but it is, as I said, a interpretation of data. But thank you for (laughs) writing in. Keegan Lovelace wrote in, Hey, Rogues, I'm sure I'm late on this noisy, but I wanted to throw my name in the hat. I think it's the SARS-CoV-19 virus spikes converted into sound. The amino acids that make up the proteins are each assigned a tone and different aspects of the 3D structures represent the volume and duration. That's a very well-educated guess since I happen to know that somebody did apply a sonification to that data, but that is not it. You might say that I predicted that's what people would think and I picked something else, Mm. but that's not it. But that was a good guess. Next one is from Mark Lenahan uh, from Dublin, Ireland. And Mark writes, what was that? We're from Ireland, Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> That's a stage Irish. <laughs> That's it. That is the movie version of Irish accent. Yeah. You have to be lucky charms. <laughs> Did I tell you that when I was in Namibia, I met a guy who's Irish, who does conservation yeah. work there. And he was telling me, he was making fun of our American accents and saying how strangely we pronounce things. And he was like, why do you guys say Lepretian? And I was like, Lepretian? What is that? And he was like, leprechaun? that's how you say leprechaun. Oh, my God. That's a cool <laughs> like, way to say leprechaun. No. I was like, no, that is not how we no, say it. No, you're incorrect. Well, wow. <laughs> Somebody punked him. What, Steve? Somebody punked Somebody him. Somebody punked him. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, we don't say leprechaun. We say leprechaun. <laughs> leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I love accents. I, just, say, I adore them. Ex- I think they're awesome. Next, you'll tell us it's <laughs> aluminum. Aluminum, right? <laughs> 
It's my 111th birthday. <laughs> so, okay, anyway, this listener's name was Mark Lenahan, and Mark says, I think it's Earthquakes. Long-time listener, first-time guest, but keep up the mm. good work, and hello from physically distanced Ireland. <laughs> I love it. Cool. Earthquakes, it, it's a great guess. It just doesn't happen to be correct. We have a winner. It's James Joyce, and James said this week's noise sounds- yeah. Yes, back from the grave. This week's noisy sounds remarkably similar to one- from a few years ago, and I did hint that I think I may have used it a few years ago. It's a record or interpretation of tree rings being converted into music. Tree rings. And that is correct. So what they did was uh, they, they had a cross-section of a tree, and the needle is more of, of course, it's an eye. It's, a, it's, like a, a, it's reading the edges and the distance between the, the ridges on the tree rings, and it, they've interpreted, interpreted it to play music, and that's what we have here. I think it's beautiful. I think it's very – it's dissonant, but it also has a very uh, intense, re- real, dramatic uh, feel to it. You know, you can recite poetry over this. The wind blew our hair away from our faces as we looked to the sky. You know, something like that. Nevermore. Never more and forever <laughs> more, right? You know, very, very dramatic. Is that your beat poem, Jay? Kind of. Yeah. Hang on, Jay. Up. I'm going to applaud for you. Here you go. I could. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, when I perform, I, I have my back to the audience, just so you know. So I have a new noisy for you guys this week. And this noisy was sent in by a listener named Michael Bukowski. Mr. Bukowski. And here it is. And there you have it. All right. Mm-hmm. I, I know you've heard these noises before, but these these this collection of noises have a specific thing that they're related to, and I'd like you to tell me what that is. Where are these from? All right. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> We're going to do a Name That Logical Fallacy. We haven't done one in a while. We got a request from listener Christopher Lund. Here's his email. He writes, Name That Fallacy has always been my favorite segment. Please provide more. Regardless, I have a question about my own processes. I personally love to engage in arguments, not solely for the purpose of winning and feeling superior, but to get (laughs) poked with a thought that I haven't considered before, I learned. However, I find myself often using hyperbole to try to make a point. I think I understand that it is hyperbole, or what I want to do is what I think is called argumentum ad absurdum. I first heard it from Daniel Dennett, I think. However, he usually is speaking way above my comprehension. As I recall, argumentum ad absurdum is legit. If wrong, I want to know so and why. If, on the other hand, how does one use it and not slide into hyperbole? Or finally, am I just totally confused? Okay, argument ad absurdum. There is a lot of general confusion around this uh, logical fallacy, but Christopher is essentially right in saying that the argument ad absurdum is actually a completely legitimate argumenting point uh, or argumenting style. Essentially, what you do is you take an argument that you do not think is valid and you say, okay, if if we take the conclusions of this argument at face value and we take them to their legitimate extreme, then it reveals the weakness in the argument, right? So let's say, for example, like your argument is lying is always wrong and you should never okay. lie. Lying is unethical. And I would say, okay, 
So now I'm going to take that to its extreme to test that premise that lying is always wrong. So let's say that you are hiding a Jewish refugee in your basement and the SS comes to your house and asks if you're harboring any Jews. Do you tell them the truth or do you lie? So, yeah, that's an extreme situation. Not that it didn't really happen, you know, but that's an extreme situation that illustrates that the premise that lying is always wrong mm-hmm. isn't valid, right? It doesn't hold. You found an extreme example, but you found that there are limits to it. Or, you know, I think um, it comes up a lot uh, in skeptical circles when people say things like um, free speech should be absolute, right? Yeah. Say, so, okay, really? You can't think of any time where there's a situation where there you know there can be reasonable limits and then you try to find them right that's the argument ad absurdum so that is a legitimate debating technique uh when used properly but that's the rub right yeah, so where does it the, fail? the fallacy is when you make a false argument ad absurdum which means that you go beyond the logical extension of the argument and turn it into something it was never meant to be I encounter that strategy all the time. Like, for example, somebody says, oh, yeah, you know, free speech should be absolute with no exceptions, period. I'll say, yeah, well, that's not really what the law says. Like, for example, it, it's uh, the government does have a right to, you know, limit fraud, you know, fraudulent commercial speech. And then they say, oh, yeah, does that mean that you want the government putting you away for expressing political opinions? That's a false. That's not what I just said. That's not what I just said. That's a false. How did you get there? Yeah, yeah. That's like sort of leapfrogging to a position that is not a logical extension of what you just said. Um, So it kind of turns it into a straw man, right? So Mm -hmm. the two things are kind of related there. But the strategy, how you get to the straw man is by taking the starting point of someone's position and then giving a false argument ad absurdum, as opposed to like the like taking that consistently within the logic of the argument itself and showing that. It's actually broken, you know, because if you it doesn't work in 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 some situations. So it is a tricky argument to use, and it's very easy to convince yourself that you're using it when in fact you're just using it to create a straw man. So you have to be very very careful uh, when when you use this debating strategy to make sure that you are. Um, and again, the, the 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 best thing to do is when you are trying to do that is to really err on the side of charity and which is charity is the anti straw man approach mm-hmm. right where you give that person the best interpretation of their position and every benefit of the doubt like if i make the best possible you know version of your position even then it doesn't work because of these examples etc as opposed to creating an absurd version you know, that's not valid, that's not fair, that's not charitable of their position in order to make a false argument ad absurdum. Does that make sense? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah. One very quick email, just because this is a, a follow-up. Um, I Last week I gave a quick follow-up to the most potent venom in the world. And oh, yeah. uh, I couldn't really find a, one consensus definitive resource on the most potent snake venom. But we got an email from Dr. Timothy Jackson, who says that he Ooh. is the co-head of the Australian Venom Research Unit. Hello. So I, cool. I guess this guy knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and he, 
Two-headed snake. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole email because it's long, but it's in the show notes. And by the way, some people don't know that we have show notes, and we do. So if you go to the website, look under the episode, you'll see all the notes, like like the full emails that we're talking about. But he writes in part, in brief, the inland Taipan has the lowest LD50, i.e. most toxic venom, of any tested on rodents. Mulga snakes do not have impressively low LD50s. They're envenoming strategies based on very yes. large quantities of venom rather than particularly toxic venom. Envenoming. As I'm sure you know, nice. yeah, there are, many, there are a great many caveats that have to be appended to this sort of information. For example, the tests are done on lab rodents under controlled conditions. The results reflect lab reality and are not directly translatable to either the ecological, in terms of the actual functional deployment of the venom in nature, or clinical realities. Venom uh, may be administered subcutaneously, intramuscularly, or intravenously, which will, of mm. course, significantly affect the LD50s. So I love it when you know, topics are much more complicated than you think. So, yeah, so snakes, <laughs> the, the venom is intrinsically you know, deadly, but to what animal, in what way? Yeah. And how is it typically what administered method? by the snake? Yeah, subcutaneously versus intravenously because those have different LD50s. And I like the, the concept of envenoming strategy, right? So different snakes use venom in different ways. The mulga snake's envenoming strategy is to, is to inject a large amount of venom, whereas the, the, the taipan in, in injects only small amounts, with, but it has to be very, very rapid acting because their prey are small, fast animals, namely mice and, and rats mm. and stuff. But if you're testing the LD50 on rodents, would that give an advantage, so to speak, to a snake that eats rodents, right? Because their venom is especially deadly to rodents. What if you're a snake that eats lizards? Maybe your venom will be more deadly to lizards than it is to rodents. And therefore the LD50 to oh, rodents yeah. won't, be as, won't be as low, but it right. would be if you were testing geckos. You know, who knows? So anyway... Yeah, he said that there's actually limited research on this. You know, a lot of it was actually done in 1979, like one big study, and actually did focus on Australian snakes, which is why Australia has partly why they have a reputation for having so many venomous snakes. It's just an artifact of of the, the studies that were published. Not that they don't have a lot of venomous snakes. They do, but um, like Africa does as well, but they didn't get as much attention as the Australian snakes did, apparently. So anyway... I think what the, all this means is, yeah, the inland Taipan has the lowest LD50, the most toxic venom, not the mulga snake. But there's a lot of caveats and complexities to envenoming. Uh, and if you want all the details, you can go in the show notes to read the full email. Okay, let's go on with science fiction. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. Now, the theme, Kara, relates to something you said earlier in the show. Hmm. Is that when, when you're going through news items, it's hard to find non-COVID-19 related news items. And when I was prepping hmm. for science or fiction, that's what I found too. So I just said, all right, I'm just going to do COVID-19 news items as the theme because I can't find enough non-COVID-19 related news items to, f to fill out a science or fiction. So these are three news items all related to COVID-19. Are you ready? Yes. All right. Item number one, researchers have developed a new nasal swab test for COVID-19 that is more sensitive and accurate than PCR and takes only minutes. Item number two, a recent review found 
that more complete protective clothing may actually lead to greater contamination. And item number three, the FDA has fast-tracked and approved the first monoclonal antibody for compassionate use in the treatment of end-stage COVID-19. Bob, go first. Oh, man. I've read a lot of this news. I'm not – yeah, you pick some good ones. More sensitive and accurate than PCR intakes. Only minutes. Ooh, more clothing, more contamination. Wow. Uh, if you guys, all right. I'll, man, oh, nothing would surprise me with any of these. So I'm just going to say the one that struck me as odd was the more prote- – the more protective clo- – oh, no, that one kind of makes sense. Monoclonal antibodies. Fiction. Okay. Uh, Kara? Uh, nasal swab test. That's more sensitive and accurate than PCR. Oof, that's a high bar. And takes only minutes. That's for the tester to get the results. Yeah, the results. The results. Yeah. I feel like yeah. the, the best one that I've read about so far still takes an hour. So I think that might be the fiction. But then again, I'm not reading many of these in depth. Uh, more complete protective clothing may actually lead to great. I could see that, like, because you're dragging it around, like yeah. it's it's a fomite, right? Maybe not. It's going to lead to greater contamination of you, the healthcare person, but to other patients. I could see that. No, that's to the healthcare worker. To be clear, more complete protective clothing may actually. Well, that doesn't make any sense in any situation under any circumstances. That if you make a barrier against a disease in a more complete way that you would get sicker from it or that you would get be more likely to get infected. Unless, oh, but we're not talking about people in the lab. We're talking about people in a hospital who are constantly having to change clothes or unfortunately right now there isn't enough PPE. So maybe if they're wearing a lot, they're carrying it around on themselves more for longer time and then they're getting sick. Damn it. And then um, fast-tracked and approved first mon- monoclonal antibody for compassionate use. Uh, not surprised. The FDA is trying to make up for lost time and they're doing all sorts of stuff. So I don't know. I'm going to say the nasal swab one's a fiction that it, we've still got a, a quicker turn or sorry, longer turnaround time than that. Okay, Evan. I was thinking the same idea, Kara. I, I don't think this uh, new nasal swab test. Yeah. Only minutes. Uh, I don't think so. Plus being more accurate. That's like, you know, wow. Double. Trifecta. Yeah, really. I mean, you kind of struck everything there all of a sudden, suddenly. I don't, I don't know that that thing has been developed so quickly that you've got this what turns out to be this perfect test effectively is what you're describing here. That's why I think that one's the fiction. It's too good to be true. And Jay. Well, it it shocks me that uh, there's, there's three news items that I haven't read and I feel like I read about COVID all day. Like, Mm -hmm. wow. Mm -hmm. So this first one uh, talking about a new nasal swab, like I have read nothing about a nasal swab, nothing. You know, I know that they're t- looking to test blood and they're they're testing they're swabbing people's throats and stuff. But I guess you well, I'll tell you like, that's what the current test is a nasal swab test. Mm-hmm. It is okay. Yeah, one More of sensitive. one of them. Yeah. So the so the thing that's that is you know unique here is that it's minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Recent review found that more complete protective clothing may actually lead to greater co- contamination. I mean, I can kind of see if you have a lot of layers of clothing on, it could waft it around. You know, waft like, it. <laughs> waft. <laughs> It's wafter thin. Waft it. Wafter thin. I like it. I talk like I want. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know, look, I'm I'm totally uh, making this up as I go here. But mm. like, let's say that you're wearing like you're too protected, and you have too many layers on. It's heavy, and something happens where you know your clothes are absorbing a lot of the airborne virus, and then you're going to take it off later, and all you're really doing is like just wearing a mop. Okay, I, I kind of get what the point is here. You know, if you watched Contagion, 
you would know. One protective layer. I know that movie just scared the crap out of me. You know, they have one really good protective layer, and they're just wearing street clothes underneath it. So okay, but I don't. I didn't read anything about people saying you know don't over garment yourself. Lastly, the FDA has fast-tracked and approved the first monoclonal antibody. I, I don't know why I don't have a problem with that one. It's between the first two. I'm going to go with the one with the protective clothing is the fake. All right, so you guys are all spread out. So we'll take them in order, I guess. We'll start with researchers <laughs> have developed a new nasal swab test for COVID-19 that is more sensitive and accurate than PCR and takes only minutes. Kara and Evan think this one is the fiction, and this one is science yeah baby wow. yeah i'm now, happy again, to be wrong because that's researchers have developed it that's not a proof yeah, it doesn't make, you know ah, damn it it's a proof of concept <laughs> but here's what it here's what it involves it's the, some fancy new technology so it's a fancy newfangled it's it's based on plasmonic photothermal sensing oh i knew that duh yeah. so <laughs> blood light in the blood so this is a tech it's based also based on localized surface plasmon resonance, right? So this detects interactions between molecules on the surface of a constructed metallic nanostructure as a local change in refractive index. You got that? So nope. they, they <laughs> have Tech some, babble. they have DNA probes that recognize specific SARS-CoV-2 RNA attached to gold nanoparticles. Then when they add the the sample, right, if the virus is in there, it will attach to the DNA probes. Then they hit it with some kind of so with a laser in order to laser. knock off anything that is only partially binding. So if you have, say, SARS-CoV-1 in there, there'll be a couple of base pairs off and the, the laser will knock those guys off. That's why it's more accurate because it is getting rid of the false positives and only the true positives will be bound tightly enough that they won't get removed by the laser. And nice. then they look for the re the plasmon resonance, you know, to see if it's there or not. Jeez. So that's it. They say the results takes minutes, which I always think is vague because it could be, is it a thousand minutes? But I'm assuming <laughs> that they mean it's, it's <laughs> like, you know, it's less than an hour. Yeah. You know, therefore. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, this, you know, this has been developed, but they, you know, it hasn't, gotten all the way to the being used in people yet. So until we get like that level of real world clinical data, we won't really know. It still needs to be tested on actual samples from patients. But that's the... Uh, promising. That's, that's very, very promising. Yep. So they really do need to fast track that. All right, let's go to number two. A recent review found that more complete protective clothing may actually lead to greater contamination. Jay, I believe you said this was the fiction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And everyone else said this one is science, and this one is say it science. Go Bob! So you guys are kind of dancing around. This is a Cochrane review. They actually fast tracked a review of protect of all the studies looking at protective personal protective equipment, right? PPE, and this is just one part of that analysis. What they found was that yeah, the more complete the covering, potentially the more exposure it gets blocked, and that's a good thing. But in the real world, uh, when you study yeah. how people actually use it, if you don't take it off exactly like you're supposed to take it off, you just contaminate yeah. yourself with everything that was blocked by the protective clothing. So the uh, irony here is the more complicated you make the PPE, 
the less mm. compliant people are with using it correctly and the more likely they are to contaminate themselves. So they do say, I threw May in there because this is far from definitive research. Some of the studies used analogs, not actual um, virus. They would like put markers, you know, like like phosphorus, right. you, know, like, you know, yeah, just stuff. You know, like, yeah, because they didn't want to actually get people yeah, sick. Or they used non-pathogenic you know, bacteria viruses to see if they could detect it. But, uh, but still, it showed that in some cases with the, the more thorough but complicated covering left, led to more contamination in some of the studies. So what they said was the other variable is how well trained are the p- people who are using the gowns, right? And so you, you can mi- minimize that, that uh, negative effect of the, comp- the complexity of the clothing with training. But they also said you have to think carefully about the risk benefit in the real world. Like, do you, any complexity you add has to be worth it. Right. Cause even if you are trained, you're going to, yeah, you're training if you just need to move fast. Yeah. Right. And right, that's right. like when I was first thinking of this, I was like, oh, yeah, like in a clean room environment. And then I was like, no, wait, these are healthcare providers. Yeah. These are healthcare providers in rooms going from patient to patient. You have yeah. to taking it on, taking it on and off, on and off. So, yeah. So they have to, design the PPE so that they're easy to take off correctly. So anyway, it's just, it's a lot more complicated than it, than it may at first seem. It's not just like more is better. It has to be well-designed and people have to be well-trained in using it properly. And there may be a diminishing return at some point if you add too much complexity. Um, okay. All this means that the FDA has fast-tracked and, and approved the first monoclonal antibody for compassionate use in the treatment of end-stage COVID-19 is fiction. But the reality here is cool. I just moved it forward about a year. Yeah, it's too soon. Uh, yeah, it's too soon. <laughs> Way too soon. Uh, so dang it. Th- they're, just, they're just starting. They did the, the first patient test. The first patient got the monoclonal antibody for COVID-19. So this was done at Temple. So that they reported Temple treats first patient in the U.S. in clinical trial of Gimsimulab for patients with COVID-19 and acute respiratory distress syndrome. So anything, any drug that ends in MAB is a monoclonal antibody. Hmm. So just so you know, so Gemsimulab is a monoclonal antibody. Uh, but in any case, yeah, so we have them and we're testing them. Um, so we'll see how that works out. But yeah, but we're, we're a bit away from FDA, you know, signing off on it. Um, I did try to make it semi-plausible by saying compassionate use and end stage, you know, but which is actually the way it may get approved for initially, use. Yeah. Initially, the yeah, but we're not. Yeah, we're just just like the very yeah. first patient got exposed to it. We're not there yet. Uh, but that's quick, though. That is quick. We're already testing monoclonal antibodies against COVID-19. That is quick. It, it goes to what you were saying, Bob. You know, we're really marshalling. Our, yes, lots of eyes. Scientific power. Looking at know, the same problems. Yeah, this is very different than pretty much anything that's come before. You know, just the amount of science that we're throwing at this is impressive. Uh, and this is a manifestation of that. But, you know, but clinical trials take a long time, man. Yeah, There's no way around it. It's bottleneck for sure. Yeah. Okay. So good work, Bob. Way to suss know. it out, Bob. Kind of lucky. This yeah. is tough. Yeah. He's all right. I mean, it was, this is actually <laughs> not that – it wasn't that hard on my end to find these items because there's so much <laughs> right? COVID-19 news out there. I just oh, had to yeah. find, and it's find things I hadn't heard so of before. Yeah. All right, Evan, give us a quote. All right. This week's quote suggested by a listener from Australia. His name is Simon. Thanks, Simon. I appreciate this quote. To fully understand some of the complexities of the modern world, one needs a combination of critical thinking, broad background knowledge, some specific knowledge, 
and much reading of reputable sources, which includes being able to recognize a reputable source. Yes, yes, and more yes. Dr. Carl, our buddy Dr. Carl from Australia, uh, said that. And uh, it's uh, it's so right. (laughs) Recognizing the reputable source is a big key in this puzzle. Yeah, that's where I think a lot of people fail. Sure. Yep, because you can you can cite things all day long, but if they're not reputable, it's worth zero. A lot of people get into a false equivalency. Say, well, yeah, you have your resources, I have my resources. Right. Yeah, you have your facts, I have my facts. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of the argument. Yeah, but your facts are crap. <laughs> <laughs> they don't meet my biases. <laughs> Once you get too deep into a narrative, into a information ecosystem, it's too late. You know. Yep. For a lot of people, so. The thing is, the thing that is frustrating is that I know that people on who believe things which are not skeptical, not science-based, et cetera, conspiracy theorists, et cetera, they would read this quote and they would go, absolutely, they would completely agree with it. <laughs> they would right? They would think that they're the ones who have the reputable sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Right? We all do. We all sure. do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, that's frustrating. But we know we're <laughs> of course right, it is. right? Yeah. <laughs> How can my source be wrong? So thank you, Simon. Well, thank you guys for joining me this week. Sure, man. Thanks, Dr. Steve. Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 